Greetings, everyone. This is Bobby Vaughn Jr. I recently had the opportunity to film, edit, and create my first documentary, my first film. It was done 100% independently. We used just a local company to help get the, the casing, like the DVD box, and it printed onto DVDs uh, completed. That is the only outside work or responsibilities that were involved in this. So a call to action has did this 100% independent. The documentary is entitled Death by Diffusion. It features four prominent nuclear whistleblowers from the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant, which enriched uranium for nuclear bombs during the Cold War, then thereafter for nuclear power plants in the U.S., these four whistleblowers uh, I have been working with for about five years now and developed a very personal relationship with these whistleblowers. And I wanted the listeners to my podcast to have the, the audio from this documentary as uh, people are on the go a lot and... It should be a pretty good listening experience. It's definitely going to contain things that you've never heard before because these four whistleblowers know things and have information that nobody else has. If you would like to purchase the DVD on hard copy, just go to a calltoactions.com and you'll see the tab at the top that says Death by Diffusion Documentary. Just click on that and you could pay through either PayPal or Venmo. The price is $20 and it's uh, very much appreciated if you decide to do that. It's a great way to help support a call to actions. Anyways, without further delay, here is the audio from a call to actions first full length documentary slash investigative expose entitled Death by Diffusion. The management had been caught doing something that they had culturally done for years, for decades, and now suddenly they're having to admit there's a problem here. They have auctions and they sell radiated equipment that was that piped into the community. And they wouldn't tell the buyers that it was irradiated? No. Even today they don't tell the workers that they're working in a radioactive contaminated plutonium and things today, so they continue to lie. And what's really amazing about this facility, we did highly enriched uranium. It's been stated by Dr. David Minuta that if we were ingesting U-234, and then we were being exposed to slow neutrons, there was fission going on in our body and we were being literally cooked. What business do you have in trying to tell other people what to do and then potentially in trying to say production is most important is you also saying that worker health and safety is not important the difficulty as a professional scientist 
uh, is that there's a right way of doing things and the right way might have been a more expensive or a more time-consuming way uh, but the people that run the place uh, that wasn't important. An individual was ordered by Lockheed Martin to Dale Allen was the plant manager for Lockheed Martin. He ordered a middle line manager to destroy all of our radiation records. Someone sent the bonus check that she got to our union office and how much that she got for that year. She destroyed over 30 years of records. They took them and put them through a wood chipper. Everything. These brave and dedicated nuclear whistleblowers, formerly working under the oversight of the Department of Energy, have, for the first time, come together to tell the disturbing true story of the Department of Energy's murder racket at the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant. But what makes it murder? Mass murder for profit. Racketeering. Open your eyes and your ears as the largest, most unknown case of government crimes and corruption is disclosed. In early 1956, this huge plant on a 3,700-acre site was in full operation, months ahead of schedule and hundreds of millions of dollars under estimates, a significant contribution to our national defense program. Few construction projects in history were of this unusual magnitude or so taxed the ingenuity of engineers and contractors. Here, some of the largest buildings in the world were built to separate the tiny atoms of uranium, utilizing a remarkable process to achieve this in mass quantities. One building is so large, you could put three Yankee stadiums inside and still have room for a football field. Almost 10 million square feet of floor space in the permanent buildings. Almost 70 million man hours in construction. If all the building materials were hauled in a single freight train, 100,000 freight cars would be required, extending more than 814 miles, about the distance between Cincinnati, Ohio, and Wichita, Kansas. And the power to operate this plant reaches an astronomical total of almost 2 million kilowatts, the largest single power requirement in history. In history. In history. The position that I call chief scientist uh, was actually research uh, staff member two, uh, which was the highest position in the laboratory uh, that someone could have without going into management. And my responsibilities uh, were to oversee one of the laboratories in the X710 building, uh, which was the laboratory building, 
where we would do studies uh, on the uranium hexafluoride product excuse me uh, to make sure that we were within specification uh, so that an end user customer uh, and as time marched on that was normally a utility company uh, would know that the enriched uranium was within specification now typically the managers that we worked with were not strong in science or in engineering uh, in the intervening years since I've left uh, we're back to the old way of doing things where sometimes you can't believe what these people are saying or what these people are doing and so that kind of feeds into the corruption that whether it's the Department of Energy uh, from about 1986 on the Department of Energy uh, contracted say with uh, at that time Martin Marietta and then later on uh, with Lockheed Martin uh, is that there was a certain way that they wanted things done and the difficulty as a professional scientist uh, is that there's a right way of doing things and the right way might have been a more expensive or more time-consuming way uh, but the people that run the place uh, that wasn't important uh, one of my favorite ones uh, was when we were specifying an order uh, for some of the piping at the plant and based on the chemistry and metallurgy of what we were working with uh, one of the salespeople had told the purchasing agents that they, that they could save a great deal of money in buying a certain alloy from them. And when I realized that that alloy would not survive uh, the first introduction of uranium-bearing gas, I said to them, how many times do you want to use those pipes? And if the answer was once, then you made a great selection. Mm -hmm. But if you want to use them multiple times and you want to minimize maintenance, then that's not what you should be purchasing. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're not understanding what you're managing, what business do you have in trying to tell other people what to do and then potentially uh, in trying uh, to say production is most important is you also saying that worker health and safety is not important and I think with a lot of these people when your emphasis is backwards when it's 180 degrees out of phase with reality there's a real problem and the problem is not localized just to Portsmouth. It's throughout the entire federal nuclear weapons complex, which means that the word, so to speak, is coming out of Washington, D.C. And when the word's coming out of Washington, uh, in general, it has very little to do with reality 
and just job security uh, for the heavyweights and the major managers. In John Cardarelli's NIOSH report, he says there had been no criti uh, critical events, which if you're writing, writing it and it's an unclassified document, then classified material would have to be left out of it. But as, as close as you can get to the classi classified information without actually saying it, uh, what was, you think, the most tragic happening at the, at the plant? Well, th there are a number of them, but basically the event that shut the plant down was the fire at the top part of the 326 building in 1998. So this December it'll be 20 years, as hard as it is to believe. And the, the problem is something that should have been a planned for event and it makes very little sense to me uh, why the, the event was allowed to get out of control. Hello, uh, my name is Vina Kali. I'm president of PRESS, Portsmouth Piketon Residence for Environmental Safety and Security. And the abbreviation is PRESS. I'm co-chair of National Nuclear Workers for Justice, NNWJ, and I am a member of the Whistleblower Alliance. And we are a member group of Alliance for Nuclear Accountability. I uh, worked, I'm a whistleblower I started to work at the Portsmouth Gas and Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio in 1980. Uh, beyond me knowing what, when they started hiring me, uh, our union was in Washington, D.C. Piketon is one of the largest facilities in the world. It may not have as many acres as Hanford or the other facilities, but it is one of the largest facilities in the world. And in 1980, the union went to Washington, D.C. to Senator Glenn's office. And I believe Bob Alvarez helped him. He was in policy and procedures. And they were there to, to talk about the radiation exposures and the health and safety issues at the Piketon facility. Uh, the facility is on 3,600 3, acres. And sometimes you wouldn't see the same worker in six months to a year because it was so large of a facility. And when I got hired in, I got hired in as a second class electrician and they ran the program to where I worked at every building on plant side. And it wasn't until probably 1983 I started writing safety complaints about the facility because I was working with trichloroethylene. I was using buckets of it to clean down uranium-contaminated cells that I didn't know had uranium-contaminated, was uranium-contaminated PCB oil. Um, I also want, before I start all of this, I'd like to thank all of the whistleblowers. I mean, there's many, many before me. I want to thank the union in uh, 1957. Um, uh, Ch Charles Romy of the OCOW, 
sent a letter to Dr. Thomas Mancuso about four workers that were dying with different type of illnesses, cancer, in four different hospitals. And the only thing that they had in common was that they all worked at the uh, Portsmouth Gas Diffusion Plant. I do know that there was some like 12 workers that died before 1961 and I know s several workers that got compensated. But I didn't know all of this until I got sick and, and started researching the plant. And the other person that I really want to thank is uh, Danny Bloomfield. He was the president of the union when I got hired there and he took uh, the union people to Washington, D.C. They were promised a full investigation, but they never got it. Basically, what he got was harassed and um, lost his leadership as the president of the union. And I want to thank him for all the, the courage that he had to take this union up to Washington, D.C. Also, in 1979, we buried a whole nickel plant from Huntington, West Virginia, at the Python plant where the workers were on strike. And it's buried at Python. I truly believe, from documents that I've read, that it is leaking off-site. So they, they built a slurry wall, and it was supposed to stop the leakage from the plant, but it's, it's been leaking from the slurry wall. And, um, that nickel, 19, plant, nickel plant was contaminated with plutonium. Yes, plutonium and nickel and all the daughter products. And the nickel from the nickel plant, they would use that nickel on a commercial basis. They would they would sell irradiated nickel yes. on the market. They have auctions and they sell radiated equipment that was that was at piped into the community. And they wouldn't tell the buyers that it was irradiated. No, well, they don't tell they don't tell the workers until to, even today they don't tell the workers that they're working in a radioactive contaminated plutonium and things today. So they continue to, to continue to lie. And what's really amazing about this facility, we did highly enriched uranium from 1954 until 2000 something. And I'm talking about 97% high assay up to 100%. And um, I don't know where they got this quote of low level radiation because it's definitely not a low level radioactive site. They cause so much heartache and sacrificing the families. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible story what they've done to all of us. The Python site is sitting on top of one of the largest aquifers in the West, in the Midwest. And um, the bedrock is fractured in horizontal and vertical fractures. And I truly believe, and I do know for a fact, that there is off-site contamination. I have documents from the EPA stating that the creeks there are radioactive. I've had documents stating that the Scioto River, from the plant we had a pipe that went straight from the Portsmouth site to the Scioto River. So all of their discharges of radioactive material, uh, hexavalent chromium from the cooling towers, uh, technesium, PCB oil, uh, and trichorethylene, because when we were cleaning down the electrical equipments, we were dumping it down the drains. 
And so we have a little beaver, big beaver creek, big run creek. All of these creeks come from the site and everything that's on that site gets washes down to the Scioto River. And within a few miles of the Scioto River is the Ohio River. So people that all the way to the Mississippi should be concerned what's coming from this facility. They had plutonium here. It was showing up in the waste. We, we weren't told that we had plutonium and I found some documents and a lady named Mary Bird Davis was working with me on the documents and exposing the facility. And uh, in these documents, it's reported that we had plutonium and because we had plutonium, the gas diffusion plants weren't supposed to have it. So in August, I think it was August of 1999, there was three or four workers at the Paducah gas diffusion plant had filed a lawsuit and someone had leaked it to the media. And Mary Bird Davis got a phone call from somebody um, from Louisville Carrier, I think, and she calls me up and she said, Vina, we're getting ready to break a story in the morning. And I said, oh, God, great, what is it? She said, it's on the plutonium. And so Paducah and Portimus simultaneously went and broke the story together that we had plutonium in the gas diffusion plant and it caught everybody off guard. They didn't know what to do and they set up these hearings and they admitted that we had plutonium at Piketon and they admitted that they had it at Paducah but they downplayed Piketon. I think they downplayed Piketon now because I'm aware of the highly enriched uranium and the plutonium that was stored on site in 53 and having more plutonium, they try to say that our plutonium was diluted from Paducah, but it wasn't. Um, when I first started speaking out, I wrote it. First, I wrote it up at um, uh, a violation at the plant in 1983 that I felt like there was more than 30 workers being exposed to the radiation. And so in 1986, I, well, I got sick and had to stay off work probably for a year. And then I went back to work, and then by 1986, the community had filed a lawsuit, and the two chemicals that I worked in that I knew about was uh, PCB, polychlorinated bithenolins, and trichloroethylene was the two that, that I knew that I was ex exposed to. And then the government sent the Department of Energy to my house, and they interrogated me, asking me the same questions over and over for hours. And I'm thinking, you know, I must know something that I don't know. Uh, we have uh, depleted uranium cylinders on site, 25 to 30,000 of them. They cleaned up Oak Ridge and sent Oak Ridge's um, depleted uranium cylinders to Piketon and Paducah. So some of the cylinders at Piketon are like 30 years old. And um, they give off the highest neutrons exposures. Hello, my name is Charles O. Lawson, Jr., but I go by the name of Chick Lawson, which is my legal alias. Most people know me, know me as Chick Lawson. Uh, before going to work at the uh, uranium enrichment facility in 1984, I had been in the Air Force. Uh, I worked law enforcement. I did work for Office of Special Investigation, OSI. I did investigative work in the Air Force, and I can't discuss a whole lot of that because it's still classified. 
but I do have a background in investigations, and that's where I got a lot of that. I, when I went to work out the plant, I was hired in to go to work with the anti-terrorist unit or special response team because of what I did in the military, uh, the special training I had there with that kind of work. And then there was some union difficulties because they decided that had to be done as seniority. So I went to work as a, what they call a blue shirt guard that ended up in the SRT, uh, became the OSHA certified investigator for the plant due to the fact that they were getting ready for privatization with the United States Enrichment Corporation and Lockheed Martin. And so they sent me to OSHA school, they sent me to process school to learn how the system worked uh, it, within the plant and things of that nature. I ended up going to Bicron school, which I'll explain all that later in this interview. Our story starts actually July 26, 1994. That day we had um, three guards Two of them were on a post in the X-326 building and basically they were overcome by some kind of a gas uh, to the point that uh, the one individual ended up being hospitalized in ICU for 11 days. Uh, that individual's Jeff Walburn. Uh, at that time, that afternoon, I, that was my three days off. I was called by, and I believe he was the operations officer at the time, uh, Jim Snodgrass. And it was mid-afternoon. He called me and told me that there something had happened, that Jeff Walburn was in the hospital, and they really were afraid he wasn't going to make it. And I said, okay, I'll come into work right now, and I'll start my investigation. He goes, no. Nope. He says, I can't allow you to come in. And I said, well, why is that? And he says, well, I have to pay you overtime. I said, I'll come in and work gratis. I said, I'm the OSHA investigator. I should start my investigation. He goes, nope. He says, you'll have to come in tomorrow. That was the first red flag for me. So the next day, our shift started. We were supposed to report at 6.30. I went in at 5 o'clock in the morning which it was not unusual for us to come in early to get ready to go to work. So I went in, put my uniform on, and literally went straight down to where the accident scene was in the X-326. you got to understand that this building is so huge that we're talking a building that's over a half mile long, quarter mile wide, 80 feet tall, and only has two floors. You would have multiple releases inside of this building. So while these releases are going on, when they'd get one stopped, a lot of that material, they would not touch it. They'd just sort of let it, if it was on a shelf or on a ledge, they didn't bother to clean that off. It just stayed there. Now, what they would clean was the floors and things like that. But when I went into the accident scene area, the first thing I saw the floor had been completely washed. All the cabinets had been wiped down and sprayed and cleaned. Uh, the fencing had even been cleaned. Everything within that area had been totally wiped and cleaned to the point where everything was shiny. There was no dust, no nothing. 
I left, went back for opening roll call. Then I went directly to the safety office. And that was um, Bill Strunk was the division manager at that time. And Joe Moore was his assistant. Joe brought me into his office and he said, I'm glad you came in. He says, we're working on, we're calling it a white paper. And I said, please explain to me what that is. He goes, well, the doctors are wanting to know what chemicals that Mr. Walburn was exposed to. And I said, okay. I said, we need to give them a complete list. He goes, well, we can't give them everything because some of these chemicals are classified. I said, telling them what the chemical is, you don't have to tell them what we use the chemical for. He goes, no, we're, we're not allowed to do that. I said, this may impede his survivability. It may stop him from getting the proper type of treatment he needs. And I said, why aren't you putting this chemical on there? And I mentioned the chemical by, by classification. He goes, that is very classified chemical. We cannot put that on there. So I said, I can fix that problem. So I went over to his phone, dialed the outside number, got it, and I literally called the hospital. And I reached his room and a nurse answered and I told her who I was and I said, you need to tell the doctor and I started telling them what chemicals he had been exposed to. And at that time, Mr. Moore and the other people uh, came unglued on me says we are going to fire you and I said good luck with that I'll see you in court and I continued to tell him what he had been exposed to which did change how they were treating him he survived they didn't think he was going to survive he was so burnt internally from the HF and the other chemicals that he had crystallized lung matter coming out his nose and his mouth. I asked them, I said, have you taken pictures of the accident scene? He says, well, no, we can't do that. There's classified material there. I said, we can edit, you could have edited out the classified material. And I said, no, we did not take pictures. I said, did you do wipes of the area? Well, no, but we did call Phil O'Neill and we had him to go over and do an air sample that morning right away. Which, and I'll clarify this right off the bat. So I went to Phil O'Neill and, uh, and I asked him, I said, what did you get on the air sample? And he says, well, I got nothing. I said, what time did you do the air sample? And we actually found a part of my law book, which I'll explain that later. And he did not go over to the site where the accident took place until almost three o'clock in the afternoon. That happened at shift change at roughly around 6.45, around seven in the morning. He didn't get placed in the hospital till that afternoon when, they, when his wife saw him because he was so burnt. The area had been sanitized, and I will use that word, the area was totally sanitized, and the other thing they did, um, they turned on exhaust fans. When we had, 
exhaust fans that were probably roughly um, 10 feet by 20 feet. These things move massive amounts of air. So they were moving the air out of the area. Uh, I found that out later on when I started checking the log books. Well, I was an employee there. I went there in 1976. We became uh, working associates uh, in the uh, security program at the gaseous diffusion plant at Portsmouth and then ultimately worked SWAT and anti-terrorism uh, together there. But um, through an injury on 7-26-94, when I was uh, injured in this incident on 72694 and the 326 he was the first person that I felt that I should call officially because I knew that he was honorable and honest about his dealings uh, with the job and so I called him from my injury bed in the hospital they sent me to the clinic at the plant uh, Dr. Protz was the doctor um, of record and his, his uh, survey or inspection of me uh, with that injury was cursory at, at best and non-existent at least. I was sent to the hospital in the clothes that I was exposed in, uh, I was burnt. I was uh, I was uh, ha experiencing um, a bit of elevated uh, uh, popping and and uh, I would call it a vascular headaches, uh, eyes popping uh, with light, and uh, getting delirium. Uh, due to uh, lack of oxygen and um, so the first thing that I did when I was injured I went to talk to John Game and I don't know why and I've been asked that on record that was the last thought I had in my mind so I went there and he told me he said your face is all burnt he said go put water on it well I didn't know at the time that water introduction into these chemicals would create HF that uh, I sniffed it up through my nose I was trying to wash my face off uh, at this point we told them that there was a problem and they never responded as if it was an emergency even though the ACR and the CCR were quite aware of what was going on and that they'd had problems and uh, later on we found it was documented but uh, Dr. Protz, um, there was no oxygen administered. He looked in my eyes and uh, just kind of quickly asked me if they could, uh, if I felt like I could go back to work. And I told him, I said, I feel like I've smoked four packs of cigarettes right in a row. My chest is very heavy. Uh, I was coughing. Uh, the uh, headquarters of the uh, security police was calling me telling me I had to go back on the job they didn't have anyone to replace me D Rogers and that I would go back on the job and uh, I couldn't uh, 
so they put me back on the job by that evening they left me there on the job all day and at some point or other my lungs started to crystallize and I was spitting out pieces of my lungs couldn't talk face was burnt um, Paul Walton who worked with me and then subsequently the next day there was people in a multiple day injury uh, Shirley Workman uh, Evan Brown was injured the next day same location same location they knew there was a problem they knew it then they knew it the second day uh, those people were not hospitalized I went to the hospital on my own to trade vehicles with my wife and when she saw me she said my god what happened to your face and I said I'm burnt and I couldn't talk uh, had no voice but I was burnt through and it was starting my lungs were starting to shut down and uh, so she told me to go to the emergency room and the attending physician at the emergency room when I told him what I'd been exposed to he called the poison control center and they said hospitalize him immediately now what the disconnect is between the plant that had all that information of what I'd been exposed to and knew and the poison control would be is a mystery to me to this day uh, in some respect I should have been hospitalized then I should have been transported then mm -hmm. the people the second day should have been hospitalized uh, they never hospitalized me officially or the people the second day uh, there's uh, a uh, thing called an OSHA recordable that I'm aware of that if three people on a chemical uptake are hospitalized it's an automatic OSHA recordable well they gave their self an OSHA recordable didn't hospitalize the people and then took it off the books as soon as we went to workers comp to uh, hear uh, my exposure but the hospital was excruciating I can't talk my lungs are shutting down my hair was coming out in hands full the company was calling me on the telephone saying well you must be dedicated are you dedicated dr lyons uh called me on the phone and said we think you know if you were exposed to hf how did you stay in that hf so long are you dedicated and i and uh it came to me that there was something afoot I was in metabolic acidosis. They scoped my throat. I burnt down into my lungs. Um, Dr. Saab writes that he believes that the epithelium is burned off of my lungs. That's the fine hairs that makes you uh, be able to pull things out of your lungs that are foreign to it, doesn't belong. And my um, FEV1, uh, which I'm a, a uh, um, I'm qualified now to give uh, breathing tests. My FEV1 was at 63, um, and prior to that, previous tests the company had given me, I was 114% of normal. Went from 114% of normal down to 63%, but yet the company is denying that they know anything about us, and the people that were hurt the second day, I'm finding out, they're telling them, while well, you're a smoker, they're pigeonholing everybody you're a smoker you're anxious you're this girl here she's uh, mentally ill they they had every reason but what they knew to be fact 
for a reason that we were suddenly becoming acutely uh, debilitated and ill. I was right in the hospital. They knew exactly where I was and they never come and got a 24-hour urine. Um, the hospital, uh, I asked them to take your analysis and they said, well, we don't do that. And I said, well, take my blood then. Do a blood test on me. And uh, they threw that blood sample away. The issue with our plant uh, is that most facilities are based on oxygen chemistry. Uh, our plant was actually based on fluorine chemistry. And fluorine is the most reactive element in the periodic table. And what happens when moisture gets into the system, and there are several compounds that are fluorinated, is you can imagine with water being H2O, uh, is that you're going to form a fair amount of hydrogen fluoride, or HF. And HF was arguably the most dangerous chemical at the plant. And anyway, so when the in-leakage of moist air occurred, in addition to forming HF, you actually form uranium compounds that are solids, where the uranium hexafluoride, uh, which was the, uh, the gas, the, the money gas basically, uh, the conditions in what we call the cascade were such where you maintain that as a gas. So that's why the process is called gaseous diffusion. People think that the NRC has it called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They have jurisdiction over radioactive nuclides, which they do not. DOE oversees its own nuclear uh, waste. And so um, the NRC and OSHA and NIOSH uh, we, they say we followed the rules, but we actually were never part of OSHA or NIOSH. It was the government regulating itself. It's like the fox guarding the hens. The fraud in the privatization is much larger than the teapot dome scandal that is taught in law schools. We're talking billions and billions of dollars in fraud, insurance fraud, government fraud, contractor fraud, and when it comes out, it's going to be so devastating. When the people learn what they've done to us, we were being used, in my opinion, as lab rats. I'm looking at uh, my incident report where I was injured and I see it just like John had showed, shown me. So then I look on the other side and there was a piece of carbon paper on the other side and I lifted it up and I said, oh my gosh, they've altered my diagnosis. They'd taken it out and laid it down, added to it to water it down saying, well, he was burned, but in effect, it's his eyebrows, it's his, uh, yeah, nothing about the lungs or nothing about how I might have been burned. So I asked Dr. Lunds, I said, can I take this up front, have copies of it made? 
So I did, and they made me copies. And um, then the com the uh, the company with this white paper incident, as things started going back and forth, then that document that John Haberthy had said he'd seen showed up. So we had the original document, the document that was changed, and then the document that was laid over on the carbon paper and how the change come down. So they changed my medical records and they changed my radiation dose, but they also changed um, the ACR documents and um, that those three things there should have been a criminal red flag to any agency that would have looked at them. Chick knew it immediately. He'd been a former Air Force investigator, uh, military police, and I had been in the military police. Uh, we're going, there's, there's a problem here, it's criminal. Back in the late 80s, when they first noticed that some of these had been breached and they were leaking. Uh, and so, uh, Bob, when we had a world-class laboratory over here. So what I requested that they do is collect samples of what made it out to the pad. And the compounds that were brought back uh, were compounds that were different than what was inside the cylinder. And it turns out that when it would rain in any of the cylinders that had been breached, the moisture would react with the UF6 and it would form a chemical called HF. HF turns out to be hydrogen fluoride and when it mixes with water it's hydrofluoric acid. And what it would do is it would form a conducting fluid on the exterior of the of these cylinders and so you see a lot of them that are rusted out where it looks like something was dripping that's where the HF was actually dripping and what it would do is it would leach out the iron from the steel and it would form different types of iron fluoride compounds so there were at least three different types of iron fluoride compounds that were identified because uh, those would be solids and then when the HF and the moisture would evaporate the solids would then fall off the surface and they'd wind up as powder on the concrete I have chronic bronchitis I have 67 percent lung impairment and that was from the Department of Labor's um, own physician um, I have neuropathy and they keep fighting that. I have um, congestive heart failure. I have pulmonary edema. And I listen to all these other workers and they have the same conditions that, we, that I have. And, and I have these lung nodules. Uh, my brother-in-law was uh, in his 50s. He passed away. He had a wooden leg and the company bought him a new leg. But he passed away and they, he had these nodules and they told him that they told us all that it was in the dirt, and that's why we had the nodules. And they told some, I hear, yeah, I hear from the Paducah workers, and they tell them the same thing. That uh, beryllium disease causes nodules. And they give you a, a blood test, and if, what workers don't know is if you're on steroids, the blood test will give inaccurate readings. And I guess you could take a lung wash, but in my case, the doctors, my doctors don't 
don't want me to be put under because the last time they put me under I went into congestive heart failure and they're too scared to, to do any surgery so whatever problems I have I have to suffer with it. We later find out in the negotiations for the privatization of nuclear which was going on that they got it's reported somewhere between two and three billion dollars and the transfer of uh, the Portsmouth Gases Diffusion Plant to USEC and uh, there were all kinds of word games being played by Doe and USEC about who's got the ball or who's got the potato and NRC you can throw them in there too uh, no one wanted to take responsibility for the exposures. If the company had called and said we need a urine to check for radiation some would have probably shown up. So it was better for them to keep the mouth shut, not ask for that, because if you don't know it, you can't be charged with it, okay? So they were playing hide and seek, basically. Now, if what they should have also requested was a heavy metal blood test, which the company, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, USEC, uh, DOE did not request that. That was never requested, and that should have been done. Um, and I would say this too, that DOE was, uh, they were abruptly and specifically absent. They had always said there was no neutrons at our plant. I knew in the back of my mind that that was not true, because it's just simple physics. But anyway, Yes, he was exposed to neutrons, but what came out of the cell that got him, that was in a gas form. So you had, what, 22 to 23 classified chemicals, you had the arsenic, the phosgene, you had U-234, you had U-235, you had U-238, uh, neutron, when the slow neutron hits U-238, it turns it into PU-238, which is plutonium. So, all those things he was ingesting. The neutrons that he got probably would have came from the system as an ionizing, in my opinion. The way, because we had later learned that they were shooting the cell above him, which meant they were trying to clean it, possibly because of blockages, which means they were having probably a, what they call a slow cooker, which actually is a subcritical reaction that is releasing neutrons, massive amounts of neutrons, and gamma radiation. Instead of 99.2% uranium-238, there might be 99.5% uranium-238 in the depleted uranium. And in those situations, there is some finite increase in the, in the 238 isotope that can accept neutrons, become uranium-239, and then go through that process to make the transuranics where neptunium and plutonium are the two lightest of the transuranics. The plutonium is actually both a chemical and a radiological poison.
And so even teeny tiny amounts of plutonium can act as uh, chemical poisons that can kill you. And so that's one of the reasons just up front uh, about plutonium, why you've absolutely got to know where it is, how much there is, and then do what you can to remove it. Now, uh, the, the issue with how does it form, uh, because at, at our plant, the, well, what I want you to recognize is plutonium should not be part of what's going on. And then just to do a little science 101, is you want to think about uranium as element number 92. That means it's got 92 protons. Plutonium is element number 94. So that means it has 94 protons. Now, other than for a mine in Africa, you can't go and take, say, a soil sample and have any natural plutonium in it, where soil will have a finite amount of uranium in it because uranium is a natural element. So what you have to recognize is that the plutonium has to be made. And in order to make plutonium, you've got to have a very limited and special number of circumstances. Now, when you do uranium enrichment, what you're doing is you're building up the concentration of the uranium-235 in the midst of the more plentiful uranium-238. So they both have 92 protons, but the key distinction is the number of neutrons. So the 235 has 143 neutrons, and the 238 has 146. The curious thing is that when you have uranium-238, which would be in the depleted stream, where the uranium-235 would be in the enriched stream, See. is uh, you're going to have neutron capture mm -hmm. by the uranium-238. And so just to keep things very simple, that additional neutron becomes the 147th neutron, and it creates a separate element called uranium-239. Well, uranium-239 has a relatively short half-life, and it decays to neptunium-239, which is element number 93. Neptunium-239 also has a relatively short half-life, and it also then decays mm -hmm. uh, by a beta emission, and it makes plutonium-239. Gaseous diffusion through porous barriers is the most efficient method for separating the lighter U-235 isotope from the U-238 isotope of uranium. The actual separation is accomplished by means of a barrier which contains billions of holes, each smaller than two millionths of an inch. 
The U-235 molecules in the gas, being lighter, move faster and pass through the barrier more quickly. The enriched portion of the gas is then sent successively through other barriers for further concentration. So, in other words, in areas where there were neutrons is plutonium-239 could be formed if there was a lot of uranium-238 and there were available neutrons to be captured and then ultimately you would have the two beta decays to get you to the plutonium-239. The X705 they did experimental work with plutonium and it got so contaminated in there that they had to shut it down. It was so hot and they had workers that worked in there that had to high, such high exposures that they took him down to Oak Ridge trying to get their body counts down. Uh, I do have their body counts here and they, are, they, were, they were tremendously high. And I know several of those workers that have passed away. On January 5th, 1995, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory published a report entitled Forensic Radiochemistry of Public Site Inspection Samples after conducting intensive third-party inspections of the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant and the Paducah Gaseous Diffusion Plant. The reason for these inspections was to evaluate the possibility of classified information getting into the hands of a spy posing as a normal routine inspector. In order to assess this possibility, Lawrence Livermore's Forensic Science Center was asked to perform a counter-forensic sampling. Project Public, Portsmouth Paducah Uranium Barrier, Livermore Investigative Campaign, applied state-of-the-art technologies to interrogate wipes and other samples from areas of the plants where converters were disassembled or barrier was destroyed. At Portsmouth, the investigators chose the X705 building. Why? Well, I think the reason why the X705 was first chosen is when that is when transuranics first were discovered at the Portsmouth Gases Diffusion Plant. Uh, keep in mind they're bringing equipment in there, they're breaking equipment open, uh, they're used, you've got acid tables that have acid wash, you have people that has acid with a uh, hood above it trying to keep the fumes away from them, and they weren't in air mass when they were doing this. And they're scrubbing these parts with metal brushes as the acid eats the product off of this equipment. It would splash over, it would get into the cracks of the floor, you would have, have product that was processed from converters, from blades and different things where they were trying to clean stuff up so they could get rid of it or to reuse it and then or put it back in service. So this was spilling over, it was getting in into the basement, it was building up because of the assays and because of how contaminated these things were that were coming out with high assay on them, 97% uh, weapons grade, 20% and above, that we were getting transuranics in there when they discovered it, 
it went from basically an open building to where literally you could walk into it. You've got a guy within 10 feet of where you're working in a machine gun nest. The guards would be eating their lunches there, which I can say I did not do. I refused to eat my lunch there. I would go hungry. But be an acid bath with a guy scrubbing high assay product off of material less than 10 feet from me. And people could literally walk in from the outside doors, from the high bay doors, from the front doors, the side doors, and come and go as they please to. Now we got transgenics. Oh my God, what are we going to do? And they put in everybody into what we call canary suits. Anti-C's. Anti-C's. Uh, and they were the heavy NICs with shoe covers. You could no longer smoke in there. You could no longer eat in there. Now we have a serious problem. So it goes from one extreme, it's an open building, anybody can walk in, to now you have only one access door. But they had used that building, that was central to also the, the, area. the process. That building was central to the process, so it didn't matter where the converters come from, they were brought into there to be, or what part of the process, they were brought in there to be torn down. And this building wasn't new, it was old. And so uh, there was some question, and there was some people that, uh, some documented fact that this goes back into 1979 where there were complaints from the OCAW on people not using respirators, on welders using welding torches, which high high heat on this, uh, that there were people washing and scrubbing parts barehanded. So this has already been documented and recorded, but then you uh, have people there that thinks because of the culture of the place, we shouldn't have to do this. This is not fair to us. We shouldn't have to uh, monitor in and monitor out. This is, uh, the management had been caught doing something that they had culturally done for years, for decades. And now suddenly they're having to admit there's a problem here. And it's not accessible. You just can't walk in anytime you want to. There's high assay material here. Uh, there's people being contaminated. There's people that have been contaminated. Suddenly you're going from zero to 60 and you're in anti-seize. But prior to that, people were walking out of there and just wearing a pair of coveralls, not even wearing skivvies under them, wearing shoes that they could have worn home. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, it, it, you get people that's smart enough to say, hey, son, don't wear those shoes home. But so it's a possibility that this stuff could have gone off site just because of the culture of the way that it was done. The guards were there. The guards had to be in there. The guards were there right along with the workers. But one, we didn't have the knowledge. And two, we weren't on the uh, urinalysis program. Right. And there are documents from 1979 under Goodyear that showed that they weren't doing proper uh, urinalysis to the OCAW and that uh, they weren't allowing the uh, 
IH and HP to be married together to show that internal and external urinalysis, this is documented fact, that that's how people were getting sick. The people that worked in these places, I mean, the conditions, they're blasting high assay material out of, of uh, these, these cells and people with no NICs, the stuff just splashing everywhere, uh, going down into these tunnels and like I said, people using high heat. Uh, if water is introduced into there, uh, or we talked earlier about the, the fact that the, the uh, concrete had moisture there were sparks coming off the floor, you know, where this stuff was being introduced to water. And uh, you, they wouldn't move one of these uh, cells in there to break it down. We'd block off all the roads. That also become, it would have been done before. Right. But now suddenly we couldn't pass one of these things on the road because it might go critical. Part of it, and this is also documented, part of it, they didn't want us to know what we were being... Uh, exposed to because we might negotiate for hazardous pay. There was quite a bit of U-234 over there. Yeah. Well, it's it's a documented fact that's been stated by Dr. David Minuta that if we were ingesting U-234 and then we were being exposed to slow neutrons, there was fission going on in our body and we were being literally cooked. It's pretty, it's pretty well kept silent, and the plant was called Goodyear Atomic from, 50, from 54, 53 to um, 1985, when all the, the problems with all the workers and people speaking out a little bit. But everything was a secret there, and you're not allowed, you weren't allowed to talk about your job. I mean, you could go in and have your hair cut, and that guy could be an investigator. So people were scared to talk about their job. And when it said it was like Goodyear tar and rubber, and we had Goodyear tar rubber, they had, had tires where you changed your tires in town. I thought they did something for Goodyear tar and rubber when I went to work out there. I had no idea that they were making um, weapons grade material. DOE uses a code word called slow cooker. What that means is subcritical reaction. The vaults where, where Jeff, Paul, and I worked, we stored thousands of cylinders. That's all I can say. Those cylinders had high assay material, everything above weapons grade. Those cylinders were on 24-inch centers to keep them from going critical. What we did not know is that it was having a subcritical reaction. It's just below criticality. The alarm systems in the buildings, when we would have a shipment movement, the criticality alarms, when we would drive by in our truck that has the four inch cylinders or five inch cylinders in, it would set them off. And they say, oh, it's a malfunction. It turned out it wasn't a malfunction. That we were working in those faults in a subcritical reaction 24-7. That's why we were getting such high bolus rates of gamma and neutron.
I think they purposely were trying to hide neutrons. And the reason is, we later discovered that in the U-235 that we were enriching to 97%, there was also 5 to 7 kgs of U-234 mixed in with that and also U-238. Now, the thing about the U-238, that in itself is not as bad, but because of the U-234, and it is U-234, and the reason they use U-235, because it's not emitting as much radiation as the other isotopes, okay? So it's more controllable for the warheads. So the U-234, which depending on whose textbook you read, is 3,000 to 10,000 times more radioactive. That's a fact. You can find it in any textbook on radiation. It's putting out neutrons. The slow neutron, when it hits U-238, turns it into PU, turns it into plutonium. So they hide the neutron so they don't know that we are creating plutonium. In my opinion, and that's the way I'm going to make this statement, in my opinion, they were paying people bonus money to do these acts. We know of an individual that when I told him about the badges being falsified. An individual was ordered by Lockheed Martin to Dale Allen was the division or was the plant manager for Lockheed Martin. He ordered a middle line manager to destroy all of our radiation records. Someone sent the bonus check that she got to our union office and how much that she got for that year. She destroyed over 30 years of records. They took them and put them through a wood chipper. Everything. At that time, they were still using the big mag tapes before they went down to the new system. So we had 30 years of records on these mag tapes. Well, anytime he had to do an adjustment, he would have to go from the 1000 building, walk all the way over to the 112 building, which was probably a couple hundred yards, and then walk back, get that information, fill out the paperwork for that one, one guy or woman, whatever it happened to be, go back, do his adjustment, and then walk back. So what Mike started doing, he kept a Rolodex file. So he says, well, let me go show you. He said, come to my office. So he takes me into his office, and he pulls out this big Rolodex file. I said, what's this? Is? This is all the guard and material handler's records. He says, I take every read, so I don't have to walk back and forth, back and forth. I take every read, and I put it on here. And I'm looking at my records. He had my, my name and my employment number on that Rolodex file. So he takes that, and he says, give me your your." Employment numbers. I gave it to him. He rolls it up from 1984 forward. There's all my reads. He goes, Now, see, you, you had 3.2 here. That's too high. We know we can't get that here. We just know it. So here's what we adjusted it to 
that was my what was reported in my records was the adjusted dose. And I said, what happened to the dose that the computer had? He goes, well, when it makes that read, we put it in the bucket because we didn't allow it. I said, what's a bucket? He goes, well, when we get a high read before we would lock it into the computer, we would do the read first instead of locking it into the computer. And then I said, do you do that? Or everybody goes, well, no, basically the guards and the material handlers. I said, really? Just, just us? He goes, well, you guys are always around this stuff, so you know we know there's a possibility that you're going to get something that other people may not get. So what they did, when they got what they called a bad badge, they would kick that into what they called their bucket. And that dose floated around inside that computer in the bucket dose. Now, under OSHA guidelines, a bucket dose is illegal. And that's per OSHA. How many times was a bucket dose used? Can you estimate? Thousands upon thousands. We're talking 30 years of records that I know were destroyed, and there's more on that information. Found out there's actually two times the records were destroyed. Going back again to 1979, John Bransford, working with the company American Health Profiles at the plant, sent a letter to Raphael Moore, who was in charge of industrial hygiene for the national union known as OCAW, which is Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers. The letter exclaimed the distress he and others face, including plant management, forcing Mr. Bransford to destroy all the tapes and records. Thus left no evidence as to how much radiation the workers were being exposed to up to that point. They're building a, a waste cell on 340 acres, which is east of the plant. And Marvin Rezikoff came here and did a groundwater study for us. And that 340 acres on the direction that the wind normally doesn't blow is contaminated with plutonium. It's sitting over top of our aquifer, and now they are digging up 100 acres so they can disassemble that plant and put stuff in that waste cell. I do know that the cell at Fernald has had a, um, a leak and they, it had to be repaired because I have a neighbor who repaired it. So I know that it doesn't work. The DOE just flat out lied to the community. I would like to see the people that have been harmed and the families that have been harmed get the proper restitution that they're supposed to have. I would like to see the children that I believe, in my opinion, uh, a friend of ours, his daughter was born without a face. His job, one of his jobs was to find slow cookers. In other words, where we had blockages and pipes he would go into the cell housing with a neutron monitor, which is how they would find them. So they knew the neutrons were there. They hid the neutrons. But we used a neutron monitor to find the blockages because when you have a blockage, now it's emitting a large amounts of neutrons. So this guy would crawl in there with this neutron monitor and he would mark where they're at and then they would treat them to break up those blockages. 
when his daughter was born, imagine your daughter's born with no ears, no eyes, no mouth, no nose. She had two holes that she breathed through. Imagine what that did to his wife. That child lived for almost 18 months. All they could do was hold it. It had no sensory response. It couldn't cry when it was hungry. It couldn't smile at him because it had no mouth. It couldn't watch its eyes light up when it was happy because it had no eyes. She couldn't sing it a lullaby because it had no ears. Imagine that. That's not the only case of these kind of things. But the one thing that they did prove when Atomic Energy Commission did the Nagasaki-Hiroshima studies, they said that the chromosome damage from the neutrons, all that can be passed on to four generations. It's overwhelming what they've done to all of us. And I think the government needs to, to come in here and tell the people the truth because you know we can't we can't fix what they've done until we know the truth. We've got the evidence to, to prosecute people and put people in jail but when we go to elected officials or we go to the Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs which we have documents to show that USEC lied directly to them in Senate hearings and nothing's done well now that's tyranny and that's a real problem and how can an average Joe like me or you get justice when we go to the very people that's supposed to call for justice and there is no justice? They won't hold these people responsible. I've worked in law enforcement. I didn't try people, but I caught them. And we have caught these people and they deserved to stand responsible and if so uh, deemed to be punished for the harm they've brought to this community, uh, the, the threats against Charles Lawson and my family, the misinformation and uh, disinformation of the truth of the exposures at these plants and the lick against the American people here. They've done a real disservice. The day that I left the plant, I was threatened to be killed. I was under two simultaneous investigations by USCC, who was in collusion with DOE uh, on the privatization, and we have documentation to prove that. It's just not conjecture here. If somebody will follow the law and look at this and know that there was tyranny committed against the United States citizen over Russian uranium. And that's what this is about. Money. The Russian uranium, they were making hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of senators and congressmen, in my opinion, were becoming filthy rich because of all of this. People were making money and they weren't going to pass that up. And they've got the information that USEC was involved in uh, Uranium One, and we're not we're not backing down. And there, this information is spread out 
that if anything happens to us, it's going to go forward anyway. It will not be stopped. There's at least three attorneys and, and multiple individuals that hold these documents that's going to prove that there's a criminal conspiracy going on uh, between Doe, USEC, Lockheed, and, and we can prove it. Uh, I'll put one last statement. One of the attorneys we have helped over the years, he is so afraid that we are going to be killed that he hired a professional film crew to do a videotape deposition along with a court reporter deposition. We name everybody's name. We show all the documents. And it goes into great detail. And there are attorneys that are holding these discs and I can honestly say I don't know where the discs are, but their instructions are if we come up missing or die, they are to take those discs and start getting them out to the national media and let them see, hear our story along with the documents to prove why we were killed. They wait for us to die and then they start all over again. They have no conscience. It's all about big money. It's not about the people. You need to follow the string of uh, Uranium One back a little bit further. You're not done yet. And it goes clear back um, into the late 80s and early 90s. And there's a walk up to it. And you need to know that. The people that's looking at it now thinks that uh, it's only about 8 to 12 years old. It's way older than that. We were told from an official from Washington, D.C. that we had been told officially that our investigation is literally tied to Uranium One investigation because they didn't go back far enough. This whole privatization thing, this was a scam to make money. It wasn't about national defense. It wasn't about getting the warheads away from Russia. Russia looked at warheads like we look at gold. It was a national commodity for them. That was money. The deal went down. They traded where they were supposed to get so much back. and They didn't get all the money back they were supposed to get. And there were some very serious problems because of that. That will later come out. Their job is to lie, to cover up. That's what DOE does, is lie and cover up. They've never been held accountable. They need to be held accountable because the things we're talking about has nothing to do with national security. This has to do about profit and people making hundreds of millions of dollars for themselves off privatization and things that, and they've killed people to do it. They have murdered people. When you purposely overdose people with radiation, chemicals, and ingestion that causes them to die, that could have been prevented. In my book, the way I was taught as an investigator and police officer, that's considered murder because you're paying people to do these things. Get up, get up, your voices are needed Become, become the pulse of the revolution